Hello, and welcome to All Things Marketing and Education. My name is Ilana Leone, and I've devoted my career to helping education brands build their brand awareness and engagement. Each week, I sit down with educators, edtech entrepreneurs, and experts in educational marketing and community building. All of them will share their successes and failures using social media, inbound marketing or content marketing, and community building. I'm excited to guide you on your journey to transform your marketing efforts into something that provides consistent value and ultimately improves the lives of your audience. Hi everyone, I'm Alana Leone, CEO of Leone Consulting Group. I run a team of passionate folks that are all about using social media and community to make meaningful change in the ed tech industry. I wanna welcome you to this week's All Things Marketing and Education. I know I get very excited when I talk about the guests I get to talk about. And I say I'm so excited and so humbled, but right now I'm literally jumping out of my seat excited to talk to Raina. I don't really know how to introduce Raina, but I'll start by saying her full name so you can Google her and get to know her. Her name is Raina Elise Glumack, and she is the founder of Rye Consulting. I'll let her tell you everything that they do because it's a lot, but they specifically help with procurement, pilots, pricing, packaging, and even market strategy in the ed tech market. So I wanna give you a little story how I met Raina, and then we'll get into what we're gonna be talking about. But given Raina's expertise, we're gonna be talking a lot about the ed tech industry and its specific shifts as it relates to the pandemic. So similar to our episode with Sandro, and I believe Sandro was episode nine. So we will be talking a little bit about that, but given Raina's on the ground expertise, we're gonna get very deep into that. So anyways, I met Raina when I was a mentor at the Started Accelerator program. And shout out to Ash um, and his team over at Started. And we'll link to the show notes of what it is and how you can get involved in that if you'd like. But if you are an ed tech person, a founder, uh, maybe you have an organization that you're thinking of leveling up, um, it's a great program. And they don't pay me to say this at all. Uh, but I've been a mentor over the years, just like Raina has, and I've just seen a huge transformation in a lot of the ed tech startups. So back to Raina. So the first time I met Raina was at a Start Ed Accelerator program, and picture this. So we are all at a round table, and around this round table are mentors, and they're all very successful ed tech entrepreneurs. <laughs> and they're talking about their exits and all the different, like, ed techs they invest in and this and that. And Raina and I were the only women in a table about maybe eight to 10 people or so. And then Raina gave her spiel about what she does. And she did it so confidently and persuasive as what she does to support ed tech organizations. And I was like, oh, no, I think I have to go after her at some point. <laughs> I was just in awe of how her knowledge really just it flabbergasted me. And I'm still like, oh, gosh, I get to talk to Raina today. Um, I can tell you that it took almost every fiber of my being, Raina, to like go up to you after that and say, hi, I'm Alana. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> and I know I told you that before, but I, I know that many of you are just getting to know me, but I have a little bit of an imposter syndrome. I didn't feel like I belonged at this table. I looked different. I had a background in like marketing. I didn't exit with ed techs. So I had that, like, I don't belong here syndrome, went up to Raina, introduced myself. And boy, I am so glad that we got to know each other, Raina, because I'm going to be honest here. I don't think LCD would have survived during the pandemic the way we did without your advice, your support, oh, you. and your referrals. Like we have some of our best clients because of you. So I am just so grateful. And for all of you that have that imposter syndrome, like me at times, just say, okay, I'm going to push through some of those uncomfortable, uncomfortable moments to really say, I belong here because everyone has this. I know. Anyways, a bit about Raina and we will get into the content, I swear. But Raina is a powerhouse in education. The 
ed tech industry does know her just by Raina. She's like, don't even say my name. Everyone knows me by Raina. So over the past nine years, Raina has spearheaded growth in the ed tech market for over 100 companies from 16 different countries. So she's got lots of experience she's gonna to talk to us about. Um, she's a regular contributor and mentor with many of the EdTech accelerators, including Start Ed that we talked about. Um, Learn Launch, um, Project Found Ed is where Sandro came in and Raina actually introduced us. Um, 1871, Ed Inno, Tech Week, lots of things, lots of things, AWS, Ed Start. So we'll put links into all of these in the show notes if you're curious about the Ed Tech Accelerator scene and startup scene. But Raina is a wealth of knowledge. We're going to talk to her about what she's seen from the pandemic and specifically how the K-12 market has evolved and changed because there's been a lot of changes going on. But specifically, we're going to talk about technology, what purchasing, pilots. So all of these things I'm excited to get into. Raina, welcome to the podcast. And please correct all of the babbling I said about you. And we'd love to hear a little bit more about what you do at Rye Collective and Rye Consulting. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad you introduced yourself to me. And it has been such a pleasure being able to collaborate. We have some amazing clients in common. Um, I'm excited now with the launch of Collective. We'll get to work together even more. Um, so hi, everyone. My name is Raina. Um, I started Rye Consulting, I guess, nine years ago. And Rye Consulting, we like to say we work pre-K to gray. So early childhood, all the way through adult learner. Um, majority of our work does focus in that pre-K to 12 sector, especially post-COVID with all these funding going in directly into that marketplace. And we can talk about how that funding is really changing and shifting our work. Um, the fun thing about Rye, both consulting and collective and myself, um, is everyone at Rye is a teacher. We're all former classroom educators. Personally, I have a master's degree. I taught Title I first grade in Seminole County. Um, that's really where I started my classroom career. Went on, I did a master's degree, did a law degree in education policy and government compliance, because unfortunately everything that happens, including all these CARES Act dollars, starts as a law or a policy or a bill. And so how that all trickles down to what impacts in our classroom, super important. Also, when we talk about procurement and purchasing, all of that becomes a contract. Um, so at Rye Consulting, our work focuses on, we say procurement, so the purchasing cycle, how that happens, um, curriculum, so standards alignment, lesson plan writing, professional development, writing and training educators on how to use products and services. Uh, we also do quite a bit of market strategy, as you mentioned, which is really go to market, competitive analysis, pricing and packaging your work. Um, and then our advisory practices where we kind of couple some of that together and longer engagements. So it's been an amazing journey. I can't believe we're almost, almost a decade doing it now. Um, which has been phenomenal. And then we just launched Collective where we're doing that work in more of a membership style where we can bring in different experts to help kind of do a one-stop shop for a company that's really coming in and saying, I need to know a little bit of everything to be dangerous. How do you get that information? How do we share these different data and marketing insights we have in bite-sized bi-weekly webinars with wonderful experts like you? Um, yeah. So we're excited and we'll sure. talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, and I, I think that what's interesting there's lots of things interesting about Raina in particular, but your unique skill set. So I don't actually know any other lawyer, um, <laughs> policy expert, and former classroom teacher, and now agency owner too. Like you throw all those in the mix. And the way you're able to look at things in terms of, oh, that was done five years ago. And, oh, they really should do this. I was like, oh, gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> so I'm excited to get into it. Um, let's just talk about the pandemic. All right. So I was there freaking out with you trying to figure out what the heck is happening. Um, but there are a lot of shifts that happened in the ed tech industry. And we don't talk ever at Leone Consulting Group about, well, we talk about purchasing as in purchasing power, but you get into the nitty gritty of dollars. Where is it flowing state to state? What is the cycle of purchasing? We just, you know, put up helpful things during the purchasing cycle. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that to our audience too, but just what were the biggest shifts you saw, maybe top five or so that you saw in ed tech specifically 
Yeah. And we can break it down if you want to around ed tech offerings, technology and purchasing. But like, what are the things that come to you immediately? So yeah, let's talk about the shift. So I'm gonna give a little bit of context for everyone. Uh, we all gonna know these dates, but then when you think about them sequentially, you'll see how they've kind of impacted. So the big thing in education we know is June 30th is what we call use it or lose it. It's the end of the fiscal calendar in education. That is when all of your federal dollars, so think Title I, IDEA funds, Title II, Title III, all have to be earmarked for the following school year. So that is like our drop dead deadline. What I'm going to tell you is in 2020, the Trump administration waived that deadline. Not going to get political here. I'm going to tell you, though, that it was a good decision because no one during the pandemic knew what they needed to purchase for the 2020-2021 school year. We were a mess. We still don't know what we were doing. And every, it was global, right? No one really knew what the purchasing needs were going to be. Are you going to go back to school virtually, in person, mixed? And so that was the first shift we saw on how the impact of purchasing was happening because of the pandemic. We waived that deadline. And, and Raina, that was before any injection of new funding came in, correct? This is before anything. Okay. This is when we still thought the pandemic was only going to last for a little bit. This is when we're like, oh, by the holidays, we'll be great. We'll see you then. No problem, right? <laughs> this is what I mean. This is how I ended up eloping in Vegas, right? We kept on thinking like my wedding would happen. <laughs> we're like, oh, in a few months, we'll just push it another couple months. It's going to be great. This was in the beginning. And at this point, we were like, okay, the school year had ended. We had gotten disrupted. And we were trying to figure out what does next school year look like? So that was the first thing. We waived that June 30th deadline. Then the next was during the Biden administration. So we switched administrations. We knew CARES Act was coming. June 30th was held for fiscal, but the next day the CARES Act dollars were released. So these two kind of shifts around this June 30th deadline really made an impact in our purchasing cycle in education in a few different ways. So the first thing is we we then push back, you know, when, when the Trump administration did it, we pushed back purchasing, right? So things that were normally getting pushed to July and August for, you know, August or September start didn't happen until September, October, November, because we didn't know how schools were going to start. So it kind of started to shift our typical buying cycle. The second thing that really impacted is we were then having to get new technology at a really odd time of the school year, right? Usually we purchase certain things. We start our new supplemental technology at the beginning of the school year. But when the pandemic happened, I mean, it really started March, April, we were getting resources as necessary. It kind of broke the stigma of when you needed to start a new concept, a new platform, a new product or a service, right? So those were the kind of when the shifts were happening in 2020. So we're changing our buying cycle. It's getting pushed back. And our, our thought around when we need to adopt this technology was changing. Then we go to the following school year, and we kept that June 30th fiscal, but then the next day released, what, almost a 30% increase in the funding that was available. So those two things really were the major shifts in pandemic purchasing. We had this big infusement of cash. We had the change in the idea of when we could purchase, right? We realized we can implement technology whenever we want, right? We can shift. And then three, we had, you know, the shift in the actual time of purchasing. So those things were really the big, I would say, major changes around the pandemic. Now we have these big buckets of money. There's definitely things we can go into and talk to about with CARES Act as well. But I think for education companies to understand who are listening, that was the big shift. And I think for teachers that are possibly listeners here as well, it's them thinking about when they're open to trying new products and services. It used to really be you had to have your professional development session and then at the beginning of the school year you start. But now we're open to saying like, hey, it's midway through the school year. I'm looking at my data. This supplemental piece that we're using isn't working. Let's make a shift. And we can, right? SaaS technology, you can be onboarded into a new platform in 24 hours. Most of our clients, same day. Yeah, when you were talking about that, behavioral shift because it was this assumption like, okay, it was very rigid. I'm going to get all my technology purchased. We're going to have some professional development if they're lucky to implement some technology for the school year. It's going to be business as usual. And then usually the teachers are trying stuff behind the district's back if sometimes and saying, okay, I'm going to do these premium types of products to be that stopgap solution. But what happens in March when everything blows up? And right. All of a sudden, you're like, wow, it's easier than we thought to implement new technology at certain times. And there's this influx of crazy money that a lot of people don't know how to spend appropriately. And sometimes they are not spending appropriately, which is 
you know, somewhat normal in our industry at times. <laughs> yeah. so, but two things off of what you just said. One, one shift that happened was Title II, which is our professional development dollars. There was a shift during COVID where now that money could be used for a one-time how to use our technology type training. So it used to be for professional development, you had to show ROI, right? So it had to be like multiple sessions, we showed learning outcomes and go. And so if you had just like an onboarding training on like how to use Facebook in your classroom, for example, let's say you have like a 30 minute webinar, you weren't allowed to use Title II funds for that. During the pandemic that was waived, it's still waived. So you can use Title II funds just for an onboarding technology. It doesn't have to be true professional development. I have a feeling that will shift back. <laughs> um, my soapbox is always research-based PD that shows learning outcomes and ROI, but technically legally compliance checkpoint onboarding for just a simple piece of technology, that webinar or whatever that is, can now use Title II funds, which also expands access. The other thing, just talking about OER, goes into all this new infusement of data privacy that we're seeing. We're seeing a huge pushback on the use of OER in classrooms. Even if your product is free, you have to go through procurement twofold. One, we want to ensure that student data is safe, right? Um, making sure that's, I mean, that's always been number one priority. But second, we had this huge infusement of technology during the pandemic, and the IT infrastructure at these school districts is overwhelmed. It's too much. They can't support all of these different technologies. And so I wouldn't want to say that we're trying to scaffold teachers being able to use all this. We just want to make sure the resource support is there. So even if it's free, we have lots of companies that come to us, well, we're going to offer it for free. You do this. Even if it's free, it has to go through an approval process because they want to make sure that their tech can be supported. So if a teacher has a problem and they call IT services at the district, someone there can actually answer about the product. Yeah, and for clarification, um, OER is Open Education Resources. So if you all are interested in that, we'll put some links in the show notes. But it's evolved quite significantly over the years. I remember where they used to come to the headquarters of Edutopia, and they would do these big presentations of where they're going and how they were just starting. And they were you know, partnering with Amazon at the time and all of these things. And it's gotten bigger. But you bring up like what we call in the tech industry, the tech stack problem, right? Mm -hmm. And if you are a startup, not in education, you can have a big tech stack really because you're, it correlates with your funds and your resources and your capacity and you're bringing in tech that's needed. But within education, I find, and you correct me because you're the expert here, but sometimes, you know, you have to have a real clear reason to have a new technology come in. And sometimes it needs to bump something else because your tech stack is so limited. Is that right? That's what I've been, you know, with a yeah. lot of friends when I talk with them. They're like, no, it's got to supplement or you have to make a real good case if I have to bring on something new for something completely different. Yes. I mean, I think the bigger thing that we're seeing is the impact is like we're RFPs, so like the request for proposal process, the purchasing process for schools. It used to be, and I would say nationally still is on average a $25,000 threshold, right? So if a school is making a purchase of 25,000 or more, it has to go through a procurement process to be fair and equitable. Now we're seeing that threshold much lowered and that's because of CARES Act dollars and we can talk about why. Um, but the other thing is, it's the, the ability for them to go through this process to be checked for exactly what you're talking about, Lena, for the tech stack, for where things are. The big difference that we're seeing the shift is Districts and states are no longer making these decisions for schools. They're allowing schools to have the autonomy to choose the products that they're using, which is actually opening up the opportunities for these ed tech companies, but they have to be on a pre-approved list. So they want to approve the technology stack. They want to prove that the pricing's fair, that the standards correlation is correct, but they're letting schools make more decisions. So we're seeing more products in school districts and a variety of products, right? We can have six or seven different math supplemental technologies that are there because schools are making the choices instead of what used to be like the district picked one and everyone had to use it. The impact of COVID actually provided schools more choice, just more oversight on the list that they're able to choose from. Weird. Interesting. I'm learning so much. Um, yeah. What if you're not on that pre-approved list? How do you get on that magic list? And mm -hmm. do you feel like that has like equity implications for the ed tech industry? Like if I'm like, I, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Desmos is on that list if you're a math application, but like, what if they're not? 
Like, do they not have any chance jumping in there? No, there's always a chance. And so I would say this, you always want to read the fine print. So a great example is the state of California. Their list, if you look at the state of California approval list, there is a nice little asterisk. You do not have to be on the state approved list to be able to sell it right? It's not required. It's a pathway. Um, I would say if we were having this conversation before the pandemic, I would tell you state level purchasing is dying. If we look sequentially year over year, the amount of states that were doing state level adoption was going down. States increased their influence in adoption and purchasing. More RFPs would come out at the state level, but they're not actually purchasing. It goes back to these pre-approval lists. I think it was a way for states to say, like, we're doing something about this, right? We had all this discussion about trauma and social emotional learning and kids' needs from the pandemic. And hi, I'm Mr. State, and I've approved these seven SEL curriculums that districts can then choose to purchase. And I put this money here if they want to do it, but they're actually not doing the purchase themselves. So that's the first thing. Then you go down to the district. So there's a few different steps. And of course, welcome to the United States. Every single state is different, and sometimes the interstate districts are different. So there is no universal rule. Um, this is all, always fun discussion when we have our international clients. I'm like, well, welcome to the U.S. We're about 32 different countries, and Texas is its own continent. It's going to be great. I was just about to say, Texas has always been. Texas is its own continent. If we have time, I'll tell you about my first day of my internship at Harcourt was about Texas. They put me in a room with two textbooks. Um, But uh, the big thing there is reading the fine print. I think if you're an early stage startup, it goes back to that pilot conversation that we've had a few different times. Pilots are your entryway to purchasing. If you are a brand new company, you don't have to go through procurement, but you need to have pilots. To do procurement, the RFP, RFI, MTAC, RFQ, there's lots of different acronyms for it, process, you usually have to have a minimum of three references. I've seen RFPs recently in Tennessee asking for 10. Um, To get a reference, you have to do a pilot. So if you're a brand new company coming into the space, you need to try your product with schools. (laughs) That's the first step because you can't do procurement without it. Procurement is a way to get a vendor ID in a school district. So I will say 95% of school districts are going to require you at some point to go through some sort of approval process, right? They want to check your tech, check your stuff that we talked about. But the reality is to even get to that point, you've got to pilot first. And when you are piloting, are there minimums to, um, couldn't it just be like one school, one classroom? Like if I'm a ed tech startup trying to figure out how to start pilots, like there's a, I know that you could talk for hours about this, but is there a strategy? Is there a way to mitigate risk? Um, it feels daunting. It's daunting. Um, and actually, this is great for your audience. So let's talk about this a little bit. So first of all, there's one thing I want to differentiate, a trial versus a pilot. A trial is less than three months and you're just trying something. It could be a new feature. It could be a new offering to a product you always do. It's a little bit, it's a taste. A trial reference is not usable for procurement. It's just that entry point. But you could do a trial. You could be a company that's been around for 100 years and have a new a new feature button and want to try it, right? You could be early stage all the way through. A trial is something you can usually do at a teacher level. You'd like to, I always say rule of three. If you can do three teachers in a school, three classrooms, that's always best. Let's be honest, odds in your favor. Let's play Vegas here. Two out of three are going to work, right? Um, So the reality is I always like the rule of three. Um, But for a trial, you're trying something. For a pilot, it is a full implementation of your product. You're going to do that onboarding training. You're going to have that professional development that goes along with it. Everything that would do if they normally purchase your product happens in a pilot. Five key things for a pilot. One, has to be longer than three months to show fidelity. Yes, there's if, ands, and buts about it. But generally speaking, I'd love to see a minimum of three months to really show that the product's been implemented true. The second thing I want you to think about is best practices for the pilot. In that pilot contract, you want to state if it takes, if your product has to be implemented for 30 minutes twice a week, that has to be in your pilot contract or you're not going to get learning outcomes, right? If you don't scaffold what those best practices are in your pilot, it's not going to work for you because it's like, well, maybe I only have five minutes every other two weeks. Well, then you're not going to get the outcomes. Your, your product's not going to show results. Third thing is data, 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 data. What data do you need to show impact? Do you need NWEA scores from last year? Do you need to do a pre-assessment, right? Are you going to ask the teachers to do a survey 
all that information about that data and that data collection needs to go in your pilot contract. Super important, really, really key. And this is where teachers can really be helpful with new technology is like being upfront about what their capacity is and what they're willing to do in turn for a pilot. Like, hey, I'm happy to answer a 10 question survey on SurveyMonkey that I have a week to answer. That's realistic for me, right? This is a feedback I can give you. That is super valuable for companies. And we'll talk about my little fifth thing of where that kind of comes into play. Fourth thing you wanna think about is what are your outcomes? What are you promising from this pilot? Like if you were gonna get a reference, what is it? We're gonna see a 10% increase in the mastery of like common core standards for literacy. What are the outcomes that you're gonna have? Because again, if you do these best practices and implement in the right way, what are the outcomes? Hey, right now, with, yeah. with outcomes, let's stop right there because I see a lot of mistakes made in the yeah. outcomes area, and I'm sure you do too. But I have been on the ground. Um, our team recently implemented a pilot and evaluated a pilot. Mm -hmm. And for us to create the outcomes, we did it properly and we did a theory of change and a theory of action and we had an evaluation plan. I know startups don't have those resources or time to do that. So how did they create like realistic outcomes and not say with this 30 minutes, I'm going to decrease the entire school's graduation um, attendance. Yeah. Or, you know, like they, they go bigger. They're like, I want to, you know, increase this or that. And it's like a societal level sometimes, or it's what they hope the product does 10 years from now. Definitely. Right. Yeah. We want to make it realistic because the last thing I was going to share and we'll, we'll tie it back together is the if then statement. Right. So like mm -hmm. if we reach the following outcomes, then you sign on for next school year. Right. Or if they meet the following outcomes, you'll implement in three classrooms next. So to get to that if-then statement, you want to make sure your outcomes are realistic. So let's say our let's say our product is, I don't know, a supplemental reading, right? And you're going to implement it three times a week for 30 minutes in small group for three months. Based on the data of the trials you've done, what are the outcomes? Well, we see on average students increase five points on their NWEA scores. If that's the case, I would say four points and put that as your outcome. Got it. That's so really you shouldn't helpful. be doing pilots blind. If you don't have the data behind where your product, what your success implementation points of your product, then it's not a pilot. It's a trial. That's the difference. Do you recommend people do trials before pilots? Yes. A hundred percent. You should be trialing before pilot. You're trying it. Pilot is the next to purchase, right? So pilot's like, I want to give you a taste of our brand. It's the little taster when you go around the mall and they give you like the little piece of chicken nugget when you're doing it in the, in the little Chick-fil-A nugget when you're in the food court at the mall. They, they give you the taste of it and then you're going to, but that's the same nugget you're going to get when you buy your full meal, right? That is the same thing here. So when you have a pilot, you are literally implementing exactly what you would purchase. And so that should be something that's tested already. We have the data behind. We know what the impact is going to be. So that's why we can confidently say what our outcomes should be from our product. Our value proposition should be really kind of tight at that point because that pilot reference is for purchasing. So they should be purchasing the same product that you piloted. Is that helpful? Yes. And you have so much knowledge and you speak fast. So I'm the one going, whoa, did you actually say this? Or, whoa, I didn't know this. Sorry. No, it's amazing. You um, charged by the hour, but you get a lot of, a lot of information. We'll add a, a link to in the show notes of some additional resources from Raina yeah. too, but she threw out some really um, helpful acronyms too in the process. Everyone does their process differently in different states. I mean, you've opened my eyes to all of this. I think if you're an educator listening you might not know all of this and you might not ever need to know, but it's, it's, I think it's important as you implementing the pilot, knowing the process of what the ed tech has to go through and what they're ultimately trying to achieve and how it fits in the overall cycle. Eventually five, 10 years, you might have a district actually approve it and you use the product officially rather than in a pilot. So Raina, do you want to talk to the educators listening about just, you know, their, somewhat forced to use these pilots at times. Sometimes it depends on the district. Yeah. Um, I've been a part of a pilot where some got to raise their hand and were super excited and some were like, oh, I'm so busy, really stop. So you have to deal with different types of scenarios. So talk to me about how educators can advocate for themselves, um, be a better user of pilots, I don't know, make the most of it. Yeah. Um, 
we always joke when you start at Rye. So anybody who started at our company, you know, about three weeks in, remind you, mind you, everyone's coming from the classroom, right? They, I always get the phone call. I know what exactly it's going to be. It's the shock of like how products end up in classrooms. Like they've been working at Rye now for three weeks. They understand what procurement really is. And they're like, oh my God, when I asked my principal for this and I got something else six months later, like the game of telephone, this is the process it went through. And it's like, yes. <laughs> um, it's like a sad reality because, and I'm going to reference Sandro here, but like in his podcast with you, I think it was episode nine, but it was uh, the user is rarely the buyer. And so honestly, this pilot is the chance for teachers to have their voice in the products that are implementing their classroom and get chosen. Because you're right. A lot of times you just kind of get an email and you're like, hey, you're piloting this. So a few things to think about. One, my mother will cringe when she hears this, but I like to call selling into K-12 B2S. It's business to school. It's a bit of BS though. Let's be honest. It's a, it's a bit of bullshit because your user and your buyer are so disjointed. Someone in the purchasing office may have never taught. Their only experience in education is they were once a student themselves. And yet they're helping decide what's in your classroom. So I think the big thing is teachers are wonderful and open to trials and pilots, but the problem is if the pilot is successful, how can teachers be the advocate afterwards to help this company? So I think the first thing is when they get a pilot to be upfront about if they have the capacity to really do it. If you feel like you've got a tough class this year or you've got too much new technology, the more upfront you could be at the offset of like, hey, I don't have the capacity for this, the better for everyone, right? Because that ed tech company is depending on you <laughs> to make that happen. And the reality is sometimes we get a tough class one year, right? And you don't have that capacity. So the more upfront you can be, even if we just end up having to slog through that pilot together and it's required about the challenges you have, like, hey, you know, my classroom is a mainstream inclusion. 40% of my students are not reading on level. I want you to know that first for the data that you're gonna get out of my classroom super helpful. You don't have to, you know, disclose student names, you don't have, but like that type of upfront data as an experienced educator, you know that your class you have that year of students is off. Let them know that information. You don't have to get, you know, this is demographic information doesn't have to be tagged to a specific student, but even saying like, I'm dealing with eight different reading levels in my classroom. On average, I usually have four. Super helpful for someone to know. Also, during that pilot, if you have to change the implementation style, maybe they pitched it to you that it should be a whole group implementation. But again, you've got eight different reading levels. You know most of your teaching is happening in small groups. Having that communication up front with the ed tech company, super important. You can be discovering a whole different way this product is implemented and super valuable information, but your data is going to be different than all the other whole group implementations that are happening. So giving that types of insight and communication is super helpful. Um, and then being really transparent, right? If it's not working for you, say something, right? It could be that maybe a feature is not turned on that you need, right? There's different pieces. Don't wait till three months when the pilot's over to tell them how much it was horrible for you for the following reasons. The more upfront, think of the pilot, unfortunately, as like another student, right? The faster we can have an intervention, have a conversation, the better. Super helpful. Um, and especially if you are doing a trial or pilot and the principal doesn't know about it, it's something you've chosen to bring into your classroom, being an advocate up front so your leadership's aware this is happening because when that transaction happens for it to go to a paid implementation, it's we know it's not going to go through the teacher. It's going to go through the principal. So that principal really needs to be aware, not at the end, but during that implementation. Invite them into the classroom to see the product. If you like it and you want it, let that principal have the opportunity to see it impacting in your classroom. So good. A lot of these tips are, are very tactical. And for those of you that are educators, think about if you've ever done a pilot, you know, what did you do that Raina did say? And what could you do in addition to that? But Raina, the skeptic in me is like, yeah, but pandemic. <laughs> and, and the pandemic blew everything up. There's no educator I know that's like raising their hand to do extra work on top of having all of those different levels in their classroom due to all of the inequities that we saw. Um, and they're just burned out. Come on, let's be real. We have asked educators to do way too much with little appreciation. Um, and 
actually, I feel like there's been less support now. So we had um, somebody else come on, um, Tracy, who's an educator, talk about how ed techs have kind of gotten away from the space because they don't have that room to have that support or those freemiums or trials. So anyways, long story short, it's really hard for educators. How and we had all those changing environments, remote, hybrid, in-person, just kidding, back. So how do you do a pilot and all of that? Like what changes did you see for maybe your clients or the industry and how COVID affected all the pilots? Well, first thing first, a product should be solving a problem for you. It should not be an add-on, right? If I'm bringing a new technology or a new concept into the classroom, it's because it's helping me be a better and more successful educator, right? There's a lot of good ideas. Doesn't mean all of them should be a company right? It should be solving a problem for you, right? My current supplemental literacy program doesn't have strong enough fluency for the types of students that I'm teaching. I need to try something else that can boost the fluency in our classroom, either something that's a fluently specific product or a new supplemental reading, right? It's solving a problem that I'm having. If everything's functioning well, let's not add something to your plate. <laughs> so that's the first thing, right? I mean, I talk to so many amazing startups every day with great ideas, but it doesn't mean the idea is something that is needed right now. It's not solving the problem. It's a nice to have, right? And so I think it's being honest about what that is, is a big thing. Um, and it really should be solving a problem. If it's not making your life easier, it shouldn't be, a, then it shouldn't be implemented, right? It shouldn't be a burden. That's the first high level thing. <laughs> um, and that's, I think the most important, right. And I think that's where in your trials, you should be learning as an entrepreneur, like, is this product solving? And if not listening from that feedback, and I think as a teacher giving the feedback, like, Hey, this isn't solving the problem in my classroom. And this is why super important, super helpful. Right. So I, I guess that's my first <laughs> thing I really say to that. And the second thing is, you know, the benefit of the cares act is that they really defined what each of these funding sources we're going to support. Obviously, literacy and mathematics. There's a lot of stuff going on about literacy. You know, we went on this huge push of like read by third grade. And then we had all these states that didn't make it. <laughs> and then we just tried to say, oh, we're going to pass dyslexia laws because that's what happened of why we couldn't read by third grade. I'm sure there's a lot of students that were misdiagnosed or undiagnosed that were dyslexic, but I don't think that was our only problem. <laughs> so I think there's that. Right. And so we know from CARES Act, like the SR1, it was very literacy, mathematics, social, emotional learning focus. And then each of these different thresholds or buckets of dollars has kind of lessened the threshold around what those are. So reading and math, social, emotional learning was definitely the first bucket. Second bucket, we're also going to other core subject areas, science and social studies, which also has a great literacy component and having that purchasing. SR3 spread out even more. And so these buckets have really helped look at the funding sources of what we're trying to support in our classrooms. The biggest thing I talk to new companies about is thinking about what buckets you fit in, right? To me, social emotional learning is not a standalone subject, it's a lens. It's something that could be applied to all subject areas. And to be honest, going back to what you're saying, these teachers are overtaxed, overworked. They don't have the bandwidth to add a 30 minute SEL time into their classroom. No one's saying it's not needed, but we just don't have the bandwidth. We are asking teachers to be mom, dad, doctor, nurse, therapist, um, you know, PE teacher in certain requirements, and also teach core subject areas. We don't have time for it. So it should be more of a lens. So I think thinking about, again, when it goes back to like the best practices in a pilot, really thoughtfully, what are the requirements for implementing your product and making sure it's reasonable to be able to be implemented in that way? You got me thinking is that, Teachers don't have time more so than ever. They don't have the stamina or the support they did. And they have all these expectations and they're dealing with lots of extra things from the last year, school year of the pandemic. So I guess with all that said, when you said SEL should be a lens, I was like, snaps, yes, yes. <laughs> but everything should be that way, to be honest. Like if you were a coding program, you shouldn't have standalone coding lessons. You should figure out how to effectively integrate it into core curricula, you know, potentially addressing standards, right? But Always did, addressing standards. Always. Yeah. Did you see that shift? I'm not sure I did, to be honest, um, no. of, of that effective integration within what teachers already have to do, core subjects and things like that. That's hard. 
Believe it's me. hard. Um, you know, I think Common Core does a nice job. In fact, like if you think about it, there is no history Common Core. It's literacy within, right? So like all of our social studies, most of our science have literacy standards that correspond because those topics also are doing ELA. You know, I come from an elementary lens, right? I'm a K-6 certified teacher. And so when you look at that, we teach all, all subject areas. And so we look at things a little differently than a middle school or high school teacher who's like, I just teach biology, right? Um, and I think that was the big difficulty for a lot of middle school and secondary teachers um, when they were able to kind of think about the idea of bringing literacy into their curriculum. But that's actually the, where ed tech was a huge help, right? If you were somebody who was a biology or chemistry teacher, and now it's like, how do I bring literacy into this? There's so many great ed tech solutions that help bring that and bridge that gap. Um, and so I think that's a great example of where ed tech is a great solution for some of these things. Like, how do we reinforce? We know we have however you want to call it, COVID slide, literacy loss, learning loss. There's a million different ways to phrase it. Um, we'll give you some, we'll put them up on, the, on your site. But the reality is, like, how do I, as a chemistry teacher, help support this, right? Well, how do we write about what we're doing? How do we do an expository, you know, writing prompt that supports this as a chemistry teacher? Well, there's ed technology that can really help with that writing. And that, I think, is really important. Okay, so we've gone through a lot here. Um, we will document this all so you all, and then I do recommend, you know, Raina is talking about some really great tips, best practices, and resources. So kind of like the trifecta, we'll have them all in our show notes. Um, Raina, if, if I'm an ed tech um, company, maybe I'm navigating the industry for the first time, or pandemic is just like, there's too much to catch up on, on all this new funding and who, what got released where and what state's doing what. I know I follow you all on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn, and you all post what you can every time you see different funding released, and that's super helpful. But how do I navigate what funding is available, when, how do I take advantage of it? <laughs> it's a crazy nebulous yeah. space. That's what we're really hoping the collective membership is going to be is like biweekly webinars are going to deep dive on this. So one week, it could be like, we're just going to talk about the state of California, what funding is available, how you access it and what departments are looking at it. That will be just the focus. And maybe then, you know, two weeks from then, you're the guest, right? And you're talking about how you use LinkedIn as a strategy for conferences to make connections with with principals and decision makers who are going to be at those conferences to talk about those fundings, right? We want it to really be a one-stop shop for these early stage entrepreneurs and even late stage, right? We, we ask, like a teacher, an entrepreneur wears a lot of hats, right? Like you're sometimes doing marketing, social media, sales, and a teacher we're asking to do all of these subject areas and more. Um, and so the idea being is we're hoping that collective will really be the membership to do it because here's the problem. It's constantly changing and it's completely nuanced based on state and district. And I think that's the really difficult part um, is that you need to get this information in real time, unfortunately, because it's constantly shifting. I mean, in the past two weeks, if you go to our um, Instagram, we've just been posting. I know a lot of people were upset that it wasn't as much as expected, but like the Biden administration just approved a ton of funding for special education, Title I, early childhood. We Funding that we haven't seen in decades um, wasn't as much as promised and expected. We'll totally give give way to that, but it's more than we had before. So I'll celebrate every extra dollar that we can spend towards our students. Um, and so we post that information, but try to get the nuance of how it's going to be implemented. We're not going to see that until it goes to the different state levels. Yeah, that's what gets me is like, okay, I get excited. I see all this money. I'm like, great, you know, this might really help our industry. But then I look at the fine print and I'm like, oh, Lord, this is complicated. <laughs> I'm going to have to talk to Raina about this. I don't know. But um, we'll put some links up to, you know, the CARES funding and things like that. I do suggest you follow um, Raina's company, Rye Consulting, on social media because I that's how I learn all about it. <laughs> Any other resources that you can mention around or maybe just words of wisdom? Give yourself some grace. No one knows. We're just reactive at times. <laughs> no, I would definitely say it goes back to what I said earlier. We're, like, we're 30 different countries in another continent with Texas. It's it definitely to give yourself some grace. Um, I would also say, like, I think there's a huge push when you're an early stage company to go to the big major metro school districts, right? You want to go to the L.A. Unified in New York City and Chicago Public Schools. 
those are also so that's everyone's going there and they're one of the toughest go to mid-sized school districts people like there's more of them the sales process you implement will be a little bit more consistent <laughs> that is a great place to start LAUSD straight up I'm not telling you anything new you've never heard before if you get an RFP or read an RFP or just Google LAUSD plus RFP from them, you'll see the first page tells you no red lines, no deviations. There's no negotiation on, on, on any of it. And California has the strictest laws when it comes to data privacy and things like that. As an early stage company, it is a hard thing to navigate. There's no one to call and answer your questions. They're straight up. They like, don't want any questions. You accept our terms. That's a hard place to start as a new company. Don't go to LA Unified or New York City. Start in your local school districts that you're around, right? Go to these mid-sized ones. There's a lot more that you can do to learn, build, and scale um, to kind of get things going there. And then be aware of the pricing threshold. You can Google it. Oh, and my favorite piece of advice, every school district has a strategic plan and somebody needs to start a business of making school district websites because you'll see that they all could use some love. But um, go to their strategic plan. Every school district has all of their goals and values and missions directly written on their website. You need to go there, pull out. Where are their goals and vision and mission statement aligned to what your product is offering and the problems you are solving? That needs to be part of your language, your outreach. That's where their funding is going. That's what you need to be aligned to in your conversations with districts. Super important. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. I think that one is like, people don't know that. And from the LCG perspective, we work with ed tech clients on their strategic and operational plans and link our social media and community building efforts to it. So it makes sense. We're not doing something outside of something you haven't already agreed to. We can say, hey, we're part of this team, operation acquisition or operation reduced churn. So it really makes sense to speak their own language because that's how they're going to be looking at every single ed tech company to evaluate them. And every single ed tech company I've worked with are always targeting the same states and the same districts. So what Raina said about that is really good. Target, <laughs> target the middle or maybe even smaller ones too, before you get your foothold and you can streamline some things. And be honest about who your client is, right? Like, you know, we had a client who's like, oh, we help English language learners. Do you really, or do you help Spanish English language learners? That's okay if that's where your product is right now, but then we're going to target certain districts that have a higher population of Hispanic. Because if I put you in a classroom in Chicago public schools with 32 different languages, your product is not going to survive in that English language learner classroom. Be honest about what your demographics and where your needs are. And exactly what you said, um, if you're a professional development offering, but if you look at the strategic plan and they call professional learning throughout, you need to change your marketing copy to say professional learning when you send it to them. Like use the words training, professional learning, professional development. We know they're all the same thing, but make sure you're resonating the vocabulary that district or principal or school is utilizing. Without over promising. So I think that's the little bit of the rub, right? Um, I and what you are now, especially when you're starting it as an ed tech company, is not going to be what you become. But don't put what you become as what you are now, because then you will overpromise and underdeliver of what you were talking about, right? And please don't put in education buzzwords just because people are searching for it and there's an SEO out outcome there. Guess what? If people come to your page and bounce out, that's actually negative SEO. <laughs> so there's... There's, there's a lot we could unpack here. Um, Raina, yes. I think that we'll have you on as another guest at some point. Maybe we can go deeper into the post-pandemic trends and all the funding around that. And you'll have a bigger update on Rye Collective. I am really excited about Rye Collective and I'm grateful to be a part of it because I don't feel like we collectively come together um, as ed tech organizations or agencies supporting ed tech entrepreneurs. And there are so many amazing resources. And I think what you've done is say, how, how can I get the great, like some really good people in the room and maybe carefully conduct a journey? You know, if I'm just starting out, you know, first maybe you need to talk to Raina around pilots and contracts and things like that, and maybe have a marketing strategy. And maybe you talk to my team down the road when you're more mature and you really want a robust organic social media marketing strategy, but I'm not going to come in in the beginning. So like Raina gets to work with lots of people and bring their expertise to the table, which I'm very excited about. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pumped. I think the big thing is, is that also just people making sure that the experts that we have understand the nuance of the tech market, because it is different, right? I think it's different than if you've worked in technology sector, working with schools, schools are government entities. It's a different it's a different type of environment. We have a lot of nuance. We have times of year that really change our focus. And um, I think it's really important to make sure that people that were bringing to the table to give this advice have that understanding of the uniqueness of the education marketplace. Yes. And the more I can collaborate with awesome people and learn, like people like you, I, so I love this podcast. I get to understand more deeply procurement and, and all of the wonderful intricacies that you bring up. So Raina, thank you so much for being a guest today. For those of you that want to follow along, learn, reach out to Raina, um, how can they get in touch with you? Um, let's see. All the ways. Um, so we now, I will say this, we're on Instagram now. That's exciting. So with Rye Collective, you can follow us at Join Rye Collective on Instagram. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. You can also, I'm again, I'm kind of the only Raina around, but uh, Raina at RyeConsult.com, Raina at RyeCollective.org um, is usually the best way to find us. Awesome. Well, Raina, thank you for your knowledge, your wisdom, all of your resources. Um, this is going to be a great show notes episode because it, we referenced a lot of things and went pretty fast. Um, you can know I love it because when I think about conversations with you, I'm like, we're going to get through a ton of helpful information. And you talk from the spectrum of strategic to practical. So we're here for it. We're going to put it in the show notes. This is why it's a recording. People can listen to it over and over again. Everyone, you can access these show notes at leoneconsultinggroup.com backslash 16. This is episode 16. So one six, and that's Leone Consulting Group with two G's, L-E-O-N-I. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for listening to us today. I hope that you walked away with at least one thing, either it be a mindset shift or gosh, you know, I'm going to, next time I have pilots, I'm going to think about it and do one thing that Raina said differently around it. So I really hope this affects you in some way, whether strategically or just like, wow, this was super interesting to hear what ed techs have to go through or from the educator side. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We will see you next time on the next episode of All Things Marketing and Education. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to dive deeper, you can visit leoneconsultinggroup.com backslash podcasts for all show notes, links, and freebies mentioned in each episode. And we always love friends, so please connect with us on Twitter at Leone Group. If you enjoyed today's show, go ahead and click the subscribe button to be the first one notified when our next episode is released. We'll see you next week on all things marketing and education.